All right, how are you guys? Good, good, good. If you missed last week, you know, there was some other football game on or something. Um, if you missed last week, you missed a good Sunday. It was a really good Sunday. Um, we announced Tom as an elder candidate. He got to share some of his heart for the church. It was really good. And I tried to cast some vision for where we are going in this coming season. Um, unfortunately, the audio recording of that was not very good. So it's available on the podcast, but it's as if you're like standing back there. So if you can, has anybody tried to listen to it? It's worth trying. <laughs> yeah. It's there. I do recommend you go back and listen. And then we are, we're going to make a version of my notes available as a PDF, too, so you can see those. Read them. Um, next week, just last thing here. I, I, I guess there's, there's something happening next week, right? It's a really good day to go cycling because the roads are empty. No. Um, there's, there's a football game happening next week. Like I said last week, we are fully intending on being here. We're going to gather. Um, I know for some of you, it's a pretty important day. It's like a holiday for some families. I understand that. Um, but we're going to be here, at least some of us. We're going to be gathering. Um, <clears throat> and we're going to be going through Daniel 1. So if you get a chance to go read Daniel 1 ahead of time for next week. I think that would be really good. Come prepared with that. And with that, we're going to jump in tonight. No more announcements. We are starting a new series through the book of Daniel called Faithful in Exile. We're going to explore what it looks like to be a faithful presence in a culture that is in many ways working against your discipleship. We're going to look at what it looks like to be faithful in our context. We'll get into Daniel next week. Like I said, Daniel 1 next week. But this week, my goal is to set, lay a framework and set sort of the undergirdings here, a foundation of why we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel and how we're going to be taking this. For most of us, when we think of the book of Daniel, some of us probably think of lions and furnaces, Sunday school stories. Perhaps you think of like apocalyptic prophecy and end time stuff. Maybe it's just like a grab bag of mixed up stuff, veggie tales. Anybody? Um, our goal in this series is not just to know the stories. When we teach through a book of the Bible like this, it's not just to know the stories. It's not just to know the history. We're not just up here to give you a book report on the things that happened. But there's a reason we have that book in the Bible. There's a reason that we feel like it's important to touch this right now. And that's 
uh, really what we're looking at tonight is why is this book even in the Bible? Why are we focusing on it now? Why are we talking about exile? That's, that's our goal. How does this book, how does Daniel shape us as a community of disciples practicing the way of Jesus? So Daniel takes place, we'll get through some of this history stuff real quick, takes place in the period of Israel's history known as the exile. The reason for that is because the nation of Israel, which is the southern kingdom, after many, many years of God in his patience and kindness warning them through the prophets, Finally, judgment comes, and it comes at the hands of the Babylonians. The Babylonians come during the reign of Jehoiakim, and they conquer Jerusalem. They take its king, the royal family, the court officials, the artists, the treasure, all of that that's in Jerusalem. They take it, and they return it back to Babylon. They take it to Babylon. This begins 70 years of captivity in Babylon, 70 years of exile. This would be probably one of the most formative time periods for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people. If we read the scriptures uh, carefully, you'll actually see this theme of exile is not new just to this season. It's not new just to this 70-year period. For a lot of ways, the Hebrews were marked by exile since the fall, since, they were, since, they, since we left the garden. We were exiled. So exile wasn't necessarily anything new, but this season marked them. I think for Christians, the way the writers of the New Testament put it, I feel like this is our default position. Peter specifically calls us to live as exiles. Let's look at this passage in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is a, a pretty, yeah, you, you'll know this verse, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who have called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul keeping keep your conduct amongst among the gentiles honorable so that when they see when they speak against you as evil doers they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day of visitation for peter that's our, our default posture, is 
aliens and exiles, sojourners and exiles. We are not at home in this world. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, we are not to feel at home here. Things are not okay until Jesus is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem again. And until that day when he is ruling and reigning, we live as exiles. That's a direct callback and part of the reason it's important to study Daniel. Because Daniel shows us how then shall we live. For this reason, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, these were important books for the early church. These are important for us. So back to the history here. The Babylonian exile. The temple was desecrated. It was plundered. And soon it would be destroyed. The people were humiliated. They were taken away from their homes and they were brought to a land that is not their own. They were brought to Babylon. And yet, something that is clearly seen through the prophets, through Ezekiel, for example, is the understanding that Yahweh was with them in exile. Even in their punishment, in their judgment, God was with them. God was there. We know that Israel was a very unique nation, a very unique people group. This was because God had chosen Israel out of all the people of the earth so that he could bring about redemption for the whole world. And in order to preserve them, God... In order to preserve them, God had given them a very distinct law, very distinct practice of how to live, very specific culture, unique forms of worship. All of these things were very distinct and unique from the cultures around them and completely different than Babylon. Of course, all of that had been completely compromised, which led to them being sent off into Babylon. So all that to say, the people of God were taken into exile, and when they get there, they refuse to actually go into the city. They refuse to actually go into the city of Babylon, and instead they settled outside the camp, outside of the city walls by the river. Two possible reasons for this. One, they didn't want to be corrupted by the Babylonian pagans, which is probably a little too late because they were already worshiping other gods and worshiping idols. But nonetheless, maybe they had a new resolve. They wanted to be loyal to Yahweh. Babylon was known and marked by lavish wealth, the city walls were, were 
um, beautifully ornate. You can actually look. There's photos of recreations of the city of Babylon. It, it's, it's crazy. It was known by lavish wealth, excess, sensuality. It was not a place for, not an environment conducive for a um, modest Yahweh worshiper. It did not make practicing the way of Yahweh easy for them. Second possible reason they camped outside was because they believed that it would only be a short while and their captivity would soon be over. But God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah, the passage that we read tonight. Jeremiah writes a letter to those in exile. Jeremiah 29 is that letter. We typically know Jeremiah 29 for the bumper sticker verse or like the coffee mug verse that's in there. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. But in essence, here's what God is commanding his people. There they are in Babylon or outside Babylon, and here's what the letter is commanding his people. Go into the city to make a home there, to settle down, even to cultivate a life in that city. Build houses, plant gardens, eat the produce, marry, give your children in marriage. This is lifestyle stuff. Grow and cultivate families, ultimately to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And you have to be going like, what? The peace and prosperity of Babylon? To seek the peace and the prosperity of the city, Jeremiah says, to which I have carried you into exile. To pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The call to Israel then is this be culture makers. Be influencers through building, guard, building, gardening, family, working at the overall societal peace, and praying for your city. That's a different posture to take when you're a captive people in an environment that is not helping you in your walk. It's not hard for me and I think for most of us probably, to see some similarities between the Babylonian captivity and even our current climate. The post-Christian, post-COVID era we live in, the church is now found in. I don't even know if we can still say post-COVID. still kind of there. The reality is that here in Sonoma County, in Santa Rosa, in the Bay Area, more large, California, it is no longer advantageous for you to be a Christian. We live in a city, we live in a culture that is actively working against your discipleship. 
It is working against you practicing the way of Jesus. We live in a culture of options, compelling options even. This was true, I think, before COVID, and I think even more probably now post or on the other side of this thing. The way I see it, in many ways, the pandemic, it almost distilled a lot of what was already happening. It solidified and distilled some cultural transitions that were happening already. It further solidified the exilic posture of the church in California, in my opinion. Things are not the same. That's the point. They're probably not going back. So the thing is, we need to regroup around the way of Jesus, regroup around what it looks like to be a community of disciples in Babylon, and chart a course forward for what this next season looks like. It's not an easy time. It's not an easy place to practice the way of Jesus, guys. That's not news to you, right? But this is ultimately where the Lord has you. And the question we have to be asking ourselves is what does it look like to be a faithful follower of Jesus? What does it look like to practice the way of Jesus in this environment right here, right now? How do we disciple our kids in this environment right here, right now? How do we do business? How do we work in the marketplace in this context right here, right now? How do we be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did in an environment that is constantly working against that? We should be asking these questions and challenging each other to faithfulness in these areas every time we see each other. My hope, my goal is that every time we gather, whether that's in this context or you're meeting over coffee or dinner, or to park, that we are constantly reminding each other of the gospel and of encouraging each other to be faithful even when everybody else isn't. That we would remind each other of the gospel and encourage each other to live faithfully. Seems to me that there's a few ways of responding to this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. These are not new ways of responding. People have been responding these ways forever. But three ways that I see we can respond. We can go the way of separatists. We can separate ourselves. We can either do that by saying, like, peace out, I'm going, or pulling the ejection cord, or going the way of, like, the monastics and fully isolating ourselves, insulating ourselves from the world so much that we live as some sort of, like, subculture 
and don't even engage the world around us. It's way too easy to isolate and to insulate. But I think it misses the whole point of why we're here. It might feel good, it might seem wise, but I think it forgets the missional call of what this whole thing is all about. If we were supposed to live in a perfect Christian community with no threats around us, I think the Lord would have taken us home as soon as we confessed, Lord. But he placed us here as missionaries because he is a missionary God. And he is actively pursuing our community, and he does that by putting us here. Separatism is not the way. You could also go the way of syncretism. Many, I think, go this way. It's easy to go this way, too. This is where you blur the lines between practicing the way of Jesus and doing the same thing everybody else does. Bring it all together. When the church looks and acts just like the world, we've completely lost our way. If you can't tell the difference between this community and the community outside of these walls, we've lost our way. That's not the way. I'd like to propose a different way, a different way of doing this. It's sort of an underpinning of this as we study the book of Daniel. I think we'll see this reoccurring themes of what it looks like to be faithful in exile, what it looks like to be a creative minority even. I see the church in terms of what Israel was called to do in this passage that we read tonight. The church is called to be a colony of the kingdom of God wherever and whenever we're placed. We're to pray and to work to see God's kingdom come and his will done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to be fully involved in the life of our city and culture, working in it and praying for it. And at the same time, we are not to adopt the cultural ideals and convictions or to lose our distinct identity as God's holy chosen people. This is what Jesus prayed for us when he prayed the high priestly prayer in John 17. I'm going to read this. John 17, starting in verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. This is Jesus praying for his disciples and praying for us. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them and have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you with these, and these things I... Speak 
in the word, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and your word, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As I sent As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Missionaries. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And they, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. I think that's the way Jesus prayed there for us. I think that's telling. He put us here. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. He has sent us to be missionaries just like he was. This is what Daniel and his friends did. As we read these stories throughout the coming weeks, as we study these passages in the coming weeks, this is what they did. They lived as a creative minority. They lived as a community in Babylon in the sense that they worked in the Babylonian government. They dressed Babylonian. They talked. They spoke. They had Babylonian names. Yet they were still faithful as followers of Yahweh. The question is, why? Why why is this book even here? Why are we studying it? Daniel has taught the people of God for centuries, and I hope this is what we learn, how to live faithfully in a culture of competing visions for what it means to be human, what it means to flourish. A competing vision of freedom, a competing vision of the good life, competing vision of what morals and ethics look like. How do you live in a culture of competing visions? How do you still remain faithful to God's vision what it looks like to be a human and to flourish in the midst of options. That term, creative minority, was coined by this, by Jonathan Sachs, who was chief rabbi in the UK. He's passed away now. 
But he, he wrote an essay essentially trying to <clears throat> describe the way the Jewish people existed throughout history, beginning with the exile, and yet they maintained, a dis- maintained their distinction, but they didn't just survive. They contributed to the overall flourishing of the world through redemptive practices. They didn't just survive, but they thrived and they contributed. He writes this. He says, To be a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining a strong, strong links to the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is a demanding and risk-laden task. John Tyson has since written a little book. Anybody read this? Here's there tonight. It's called A Creative Minority. Char made you read it. Good. Uh, I highly recommend if you, it's like really short, small. It's like Five bucks probably on Amazon. Pick it up and read it because I'm going to be using a lot of language from this. Yeah. John Tyson defines a creative minority this way. He says a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships. Isn't that good? Knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the world. He expounds on that in this. When we think about what it means to be that creative minority, to be a faithful presence in exile, we should be thinking in terms of Jesus' picture his kingdom vision as told in the Sermon on the Mount. We are a people whose whole world is radically different. We're completely, we, have, we live with a different way of living, a different morality, a different guiding force. If we are to be a community practicing the way of Jesus in a culture of competing and compelling options, we must live and act differently than the world around us. We can't look the same. I wanted to walk through six markers of what the creative minority looks like. This is actually taken from this book. So if you read this, a lot of this is in here. Creative minority looks like a covenant community where we value family over social network. Looks like a compelling alternative narrative. Looks like counterformative practices. Looks like category defying alternative allegiances. 
And it looks like redemptive cultural participation. That was really fast. I'm going to explain each one of those here for a second. Creative minorities defined by covenantal community. We value family over social network. Our influence will be determined by the level of our self-sacrifice and our commitment to one another. Jesus said John, in John uh, 13, 35, he says, By this all people will know that you're my disciples. How? By our love for one another. We live in a contentious time. We're best known by who we disagree with in general. Political tribes have created rifts, divides amongst your family, your friends. There's algorithms that have been written to feed that divide. And if we're honest, often we're more concerned by our social relational network, what you can do to make me look better or feel better or more convenient than we are about being a family with each other. But let us not be known by our political stance, by our tribes, or by what we can do for each other, but because we live and act like a family, even and especially with people that we don't 100% agree with. Second one here, creative minority is fueled and driven and framed by an, a compelling alternative narrative. We have an alternative story. This is why the scripture is so important. Because this is our driving narrative. This is our story that we live by. It was in Babylonian captivity that the Jewish culture, by and large, dove headfirst into the scriptures. Ultimately, this led to the, to the book of Chronicles being written, which is essentially a retelling of the redemptive story from the context of exile. The Pharisees, remember those guys? They come out of this time period as a group of people who wanted to so focus and dedicate themselves to a alternative narrative that they almost, they took it too far, hence Jesus' critique. The full biblical story of God's loving relationship with his people, his, his redemptive purpose, his plan and his power, and ultimately culminating in the new heavens and the new earth, all of that is our story. You are a player in that story. You you have a part in fulfilling that story. And it's a better story, more defining story than the narrative being sold to us of consumerism and secularism 
and whatever else is going on around us. You are made by God. You are made for God. You are made to join him in his work to bring about the renewal of all things. Out of that flows all that we do. Out of that redemptive narrative that drives everything that we do. That's why it's so important to know the scripture, to know the story. Third one, creative minority is defined by countercultural ethics. We have a distinct moral vision. And we'll see this more as Daniel plays out. We'll jump right into it next week. But there is a distinct moral vision that defines us as followers of Jesus that doesn't fit in the world around us. And that's okay. God's people are formed by the word of God, by the redemptive narrative, as I was just saying. We practice the way of Jesus, which means we look and are driven by different morals, different ethics. Jesus, who is our redeemer and our king, he defines what life is. He defines right and wrong. He defines goodness and truth and righteousness, justice. Our lives are meant to follow in his pattern. Fourth thing, counterformative practices. We talked a little bit about this last week. But a creative minority is not formed by the rhythms and the priorities, the practices of the culture around you. It's shaped by scripture, by Sabbath, by fasting, by silence and solitude, by cultivating and abiding in the presence of God. All week long, you are being formed Everything you do is discipleship. The goal is to establish practices and rhythms that form you into the image of Jesus, not into the image of the consumeristic Western culture that surrounds us. We must be defined by counterformative practices. Two more here. Alternative allegiances, category-defying. I think this is really important. We give our allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom rather than to any country, king, identity, or cultural narrative. We live out, an, out of an alternative allegiance, which means that regardless of the consequences, and we'll see this played out through Daniel, Regardless of the consequences, we are loyal and subject to King Jesus. He is our king, and we are subject to his kingdom before any other citizenship. We are loyal to him, even if our life is asked on behalf of it. 
we can have confidence that Jesus is the ultimate authority in the world, that he is ruling and reigning. And yet, like we'll see with Daniel, I think we are also called to a profound humility in that. And that's the category-defying side of this. As people whose loyalty lies to Jesus Christ, we won't participate in the way our culture uses sex, money, power, all these things. We won't participate in that. But we must, we must not participate in those cultural idols, but we must do so in a way that is respectful and honoring and not just shutting them down. And that's, I think, we'll learn that through Daniel. He, he had a way, Daniel and his friends, of rejecting yet honoring Boy, I think we could, we could learn and grow in this. I think I mentioned category defying here because I think this is important. The early church was never defined and neatly fit into any category or bucket. The way of Jesus doesn't fit neatly into any red category or blue category. It's neither left nor right, and we can't allow ourselves to be beheld into any political party or agenda. Jesus is king. The way of Jesus stands above and over all of that and will sometimes defy all the categories. Last one here, and we'll close up. Defined by redemptive participation. And this is, I think, what we'll see throughout all of Daniel. This is, I think, the heart of what Jeremiah was calling the exiles to do. When we see Daniel and his friends, what they're doing is they're participating in culture in a redemptive way. Redemptive participation is when God's people intentionally bring the kingdom of God to bear upon their community. When we engage our culture with the kingdom of God. When we look around at the mission field outside, we see where God has placed us. And yes, it may feel like Babylon. Sometimes it might even be Babylon. We look and we pray and we ask, where is God? What is he doing? How can I participate? How can I join what God is doing? We begin to reorient our lives around, what it, around a faithful presence, a faithful witness to the gospel and to those in our mission field. We pray for wisdom and we ask how we can position our lives as a witness to the reality of the gospel. It's that Leslie Newbegin quote that you're probably sick of me saying, that we live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Maybe Peter says it better. First Peter 3 
13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ as Lord, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for your hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Isn't that intense? Always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. That's the, the heart behind that Newbegin quote. Do you live in a way, do we live as a community in a way that is so marked by hope that people ask questions? When people see the way you interact with your friends and your family, when they see the way you interact with us as a church, do they see hope or do they see more of the same? We should live to display the hope that we have in Christ, which then provokes questions for which the answer is the gospel. So guys, as disciples of Jesus, we're going to study this for the next several months, looking at Daniel. As those who have been redeemed by the cross... Those who are called into a family. We are called to bring the redemption of God to bear around the world around us, to, to bring the kingdom with us. My challenge to us this week is that we would spend the next few months as we're looking through Daniel looking for ways to be faithful, looking for opportunities to be a faithful witness in exile, faithful witness in a culture that is not working towards you? How do we participate in the missionary work of Jesus in your city? Let's look for what God is doing, and let's join him. As you look around at your communities, you think about your friends and your family and your neighbors. As you interact with people in restaurants and cafes or on a trail, we should be asking, Jesus, where do you want me to be? How can I partner with you? Where do you want me to bring redemption? Who needs to hear the gospel? Jesus, bring me into what you're already doing. Amen. I'm going to pray. Jordan can come back up, worship team. Father, I thank you for all that you have accomplished. 
that the work of the cross is done and that you are active and you are moving in our city, that you desire to bring the gospel to our region, to our county. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see what you are doing, that you'd give us a heart for our city, you give us a heart for our county, that you would help us to live as a community that's faithful in our participation, that we would contribute to the gospel work of our city, that we would make your name known, that we would lift you up and glorify you. Jesus, strengthen us. Amen.